Hello there, and welcome to the Talking Heads podcast with me, Lucy Chamberlain. And me, Saul Walker. The two head gardeners looking after private estates in Essex and Devon. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. We hope your garden is growing beautifully. And if you're new, thank you for listening in to us chat about our gardens, what's going on in the horticultural world, and occasionally chatting to our garden friends around the UK. Finally, summer has arrived, and after one of the most unusual springs in living memory and the steady reopening of the UK COVID lockdown, it couldn't have come any sooner. Herbaceous beds are overflowing with colour, kitchen gardens reveal their bounty of fruit and vegetables, and the air is filled with buzzing and birdsong. Join us every week for a new episode on a range of diverse subjects as we reflect on our successes and failures in our work and personal gardens. We also look at how horticulture in the UK is developing, and divulge a few things that we've learned over a combined 40-year gardening career. So take us with you as you start weeding and planting, or just enjoy us on your favourite garden bench as we delve into the busy and exciting world of the modern head gardener. Well, welcome to the latest episode of the Talking Heads podcast. It would be me, Lucy Chamberlain, and him, Saul Walker, but Mr Walker has been in Bournemouth all week, if you've been in that part of the world and you've seen a Viking-like head gardener strolling around, followed by a gaggle of excited gardeners on a tour of any of the Bournemouth gardens, then you've seen Mr Walker. You've spotted what is Saw. Uh, I imagine now he's exhausted somewhere, collapsing in a heap and recuperating. So it's just me for this episode. I hope that's okay. And I'm going to do a couple of things. First, I'm going to give you a very quick tour of my garden. My fruit and veg garden is um, in the heights of autumn abundance at the moment. It's it's rather lovely, but I've had some good stuff. I've had some bad stuff, so I was going to talk about that. And then I'm going to go inside as it gets darker and talk to you about a recent event that I've had to plan for, because there's a lot of planning that goes into garden events. I thought you might like an insight into what goes on in my brain, <laughs> you poor people, in the run-up to a big event at a private estate. That's the structure for tonight. I'm standing here with my back. Sorry, celeric, my back to my celeriac. It's very rude of me. And this year, it's bulked up really nicely. I have planted it in a shady border, and it has been a wet year. But on my light sandy soil, if I get anything decent when it comes to a celeriac harvest, I am happy. So there's some potential here. We've got already things that are looking way past cricket ball size, if not verging on small child's football size. So I'm optimistic about my celeriac harvest in about one and a half months time. I've got a Japanese wineberry behind me which has just finished its fruit. I have learnt that actually you need to harvest them when they are almost to the point of dropping off to get maximum juiciness and maximum flavour. I was a bit disappointed in them first of all but I've learnt to really hang on in there like you would for a fig or a peach or a nectarine. So I'm now turning away from those and looking at my blueberries. I've still got some fruits on here actually. What I'm going to do, there's not many left, they're all ripened up. I've got four four varieties, but it's the gold trab I think, which is the one that's hanging on for a later harvest. They're already showing those beautiful autumn tints on the foliage. So the net's going to come off either tonight or tomorrow. I'm going to pick the remaining fruits, create them into something rather wonderful. My Aunt Jessie's drop scones with maple syrup and uh, sour cream is a particular favourite for blueberries. So that's going to be on the cards. I'm also looking at my autumn raspberries. So I've got four gold, which is the yellow autumn raspberry, which is quite crumbly, but actually flavour-wise, it's as good as any red raspberry. The red autumn raspberry I have on my plot is polka. It's a, 
abundant raspberry. It's prolific. The patches have had a go at it. I have to say, I came out here the other morning and quite a lot of the canes have been snapped down. So naughty badges. Um, they've also had to get my sweet corn, but I'll talk about that in a moment. So I'm walking past my autumn raspberries. I'm going into the greenhouse now. And in here, you might hear the whir. I've actually installed a fridge in the greenhouse. It was a very indulgent thing to do. And it's full of little miniatures of various things. So that's quite, that's quite nice of a summer's evening. I've got in here my peppers, aubergines, chili peppers, which are in this summer, which has been, as everyone's quite mindful, it's been fairly inclement and cloudy this year. I, I've taken the decision to move them all in. Normally I have them against the sunny wall and they're absolutely fine. Uh, this year with a lack of sunshine, I've now moved them into the heat of the greenhouse to ripen up those, those fruits because there's quite a lot. God, there's, yeah, there is quite a lot that are still green. I've also had in the greenhouse here, and that's where the peppers are now sitting. I took the plants out literally a couple of days ago. Some melon plants. I've got Charente and my go-to melon, which sets really well, is Emir. E-M-I-R. Really tasty. Um, for the last few weeks, I've been looking longingly at these melons hanging there, waiting for them to ripen. Oh my goodness, it's taken so long this summer because of the lack of sunshine. But... I can happily say now that I have been with the family devouring said melons. They are, oh my God, the taste is the perfume, the juiciness, the freshness, the flavour. Everything about a homegrown melon is just the best thing in the world. So I have, I can safely say I've thoroughly enjoyed those. So uh, the tomatoes, oh, now these tomatoes make me happy. I've got in here black cherry, sweet aperitif, honeycomb and tamond, my four go-to tomatoes. They haven't got blight. They are looking lovely. I've picked bowlfuls of them. They've also got basil plants underneath them, which I've pinched with an inch of their life. I love basil. Uh, they, they never get very big with me because I'm always hacking them back and making them, making them into pesto or freezing the leaves for pesto in the winter, which is a bit of a, uh, a luxury. Oh, I've just turned around. And our cat, Isaac, has planted himself in my sweet cherry pot. Isaac, you look very handsome there. It's a good spot. Nice and e got, got the evening sunlight on you and you look rather dapper. I am a little bit crestfallen about the other site, which is just to the left of Isaac's bottom. He's uh, quite close to my box hedging. Now, last year, I had a little bit of this pest and I was like, yep, fair enough. I can take that on the chin. This year, I don't know that I like box moth anymore. I think it can go do one as far as I'm concerned because it has really devastated my box plants this year. I have been out here. Oh, I can see one. If I had a free hand, I've got recorder in hand, mic in the other. If I had a free hand, I'd, I'd squish you, you little swine. You're very lucky. You can live to have another day. I do come out here most evenings, <laughs> which is what you do in this village, and squash caterpillars. Um, yeah, so I've squashed, I would say, 150 caterpillars easily. And they're big. They look like a cabbage white, uh, but they are the larvae of the box moth. Uh, very gregarious, uh, breed in proliferation and in number. And yeah, I'm going to scratch my head about what to do. I have asked a few people in the trade. I have got some ideas up my sleeve. So I'm not, although it looks awful, I'm not too disheartened because I know I've got some control methods I can try. So that will be something I'll be reporting back on. I'm going to move away from the box because it does make my heart sink a little bit. My autumn carrots are bulking up really nicely, as are my leeks. So that's lovely. Got some fennel coming through as well. It's a bit of a late sowing, 
because of life getting in the way. But they'll have, I'll have baby fare that will come the autumn, which is absolutely lovely for in a kind of a gratin with a bit of cheese sauce on the top. Delicious. The agretti saw, you'll be pleased to know, still going strong. As is the purslane in the sunny corner. Uh, my peach, I picked today the very last peach from this tree, Rochester. Oh my God. It has been sensational. I must have picked from this tree over 120 peaches. And despite the lack of sun, they have been really tasty, really tasty. So um, friends, family, neighbours, uh, anyone passing by has been uh, given peaches because they don't store for very long. I have actually poached a whole load down tonight as well and I'm freezing them. Even the ones that fall onto the ground, because there's quite a few spoils with peach because they do turn on sixpence and just rot. I've put into a tray and I've allowed them to be a nectar bar for all sorts of butterflies. I think they're emperor butterflies. And also we've got some cabbage whites. Don't start me on the cabbage whites. Cabbage whites flying around. They've been feeding on that. I am very zen about all this. I, I love butterflies and I don't mind if I attract the good ones or the bad ones. To me, a butterfly is a beautiful thing. And if you don't like them, you just have to put a net over what you're trying to protect. Job done. Okay, so that's most of the things. I'm going to press the pause button because my next crop is a bit way down the bottom of the garden. So bear with me a second. Right, I'm teetering down to the bottom of my garden here because this is where I've got some quite sizable crops. And we've got an allotmenty area at the bottom, which was going to be a summer house, but we haven't done it yet. So we're making the most of this area. And I've got runner beans here which are sensational this year. They've loved the moisture. Runner beans do not like heat. You'll very quickly get very short, beany, twisted pods if you get a lot of hot weather. So the last few days when we did have those high 20s temperatures, they struggled a bit, but I think they're going to come back easily in the cool and moist conditions of autumn. It's just been an incredible year for runner beans. And next to those, the sweet corn plants, which are as high as an elephant's eye, they're way over my head, about eight foot tall. It's incredible. Again, due to all the rain, I have had a cob, maybe two cobs if I'm feeling a little bit greedy, off these every lunchtime, slathered in butter, salt and pepper. And oh my goodness, you just shove your face in, work your way out and they have been so so tasty. I've got three varieties early bird, golden phoenix and golden eagle all very good doers and staggered at maturity so we get early mid and late harvest of what fresh creek corn I don't think you can beat fresh corn. I pick it it takes me about 30 seconds to walk up the path I've already flicked the kettle on they go into a pan of boiling water four minutes later I am in heaven. I mentioned the badgers just at the start of this recording yeah, badgers and sweet corn. <laughs> they love them. And in years past, I have actually come out to a bed of completely flattened sweet corn, much to my distress. Uh, they eat it a bit like sugarcane if it's only the height of um, your chest and it hasn't yet cobbed up. But when they do wait and get the timing right and actually eat the cobs as well, yeah, they can be really destructive in one night. In this village where I live, we've got very light sandy soil. Badgers love this. And um, yeah, they can be destructive I don't like them. <laughs> I do. They're gorgeous, but I don't like them in my garden. So we're slowly in the process of fencing off every area where they could come through. And we've just got a little bit at the bottom to finish off. So I'm hoping that as of next year, we will be badger free in this little plot here. I'm just walking back up to the house and I'm walking past. This has been a new venture for me. Um, I'm walking past, I would say about 50 pots. They're dotted in different clusters around the house. This is a new venture for me. It's tropicals in pots because I, at the moment, don't have an area for them in the ground. And I'm trying to experiment with 
tropicals that you can grow from seed. Uh, I did mention right at the start of the year a ricin and amaranth trial that I've been completing. They've done really well and I just need to pull my finger out and get some pictures up on social media for you. So I'll be doing that shortly. I've got Vitex agnus castus right by my door. Uh, also, wiggling through it is an indigophora and various other treats. This is my south-facing aspect of the house. It's a red brick wall and it's a narrow bed, but it gets, on our light sandy soil, it gets really baked and it's free draining. So this is where I'm allowed to grow tropicals in the ground and see what I can get away with. I've got fajoas, I've got all sorts of gravilla, all, all sorts of lovely things. So I'm excited. I've got, oh, I've got gingers. So I shouldn't, I, how could I forget your gingers? I've got a buddleia with lovely, rich, rich, ready purple flowers. It's a treat to look at. The butterflies have been thoroughly enjoying that. Um, I've got the canna musifolia. I've got another type of dark purple canna. I don't know what it is. I just got it from a friend, so I don't know the variety, but it's lovely. I've got an inseti. I've got um, rudbeckias from seed, rudbeckias from food perennials. I've got coleus from seed. I've got persicarias. Uh, I had agapanthus. I've got thumbergia, convolvulus, hypermia, palms. Oh, and my tomatillos are here as well. I've got all sorts of wonderful things. I'm really pleased with this. I'm still very much learning about exotics, especially from Mr. Walker. See what you've done to me, Saw? I've got a new addiction. Um, so yeah, uh, watch this space. It's going to be something that I'm going to do year on year and it really excites me. Right, that is me done outside. I'm going to go back indoors now and talk to you about something that's been going on in my life for the last few weeks and months. So I've moved indoors now to the comfort of my lounge. The dog is beside me with a coffee on the go and I just thought I'd explain to you how things work when the property that you're working on has a major event. So regular listeners will know that Saul and I work on private estates. So we're not talking about big, grand events such as plant fairs with loads and loads of exhibitors and public coming. That's not the kind of events I'm talking about. This is more for family, for special occasions such as weddings, anniversaries, birthdays, all those sorts of things. So it's just a little insight into what my brain was doing as soon as I was told by the owners that we had an event. So I was told in the middle of the summer and the event was in early September. So as soon as you're given the information that there are going to be a few hundred people turning up to the gardens, your senses become heightened, you have a purpose, you have a goal, which is lovely. You know, sometimes on private estates, Saul and I have both said in the past that you can get quite lonely, you don't see many people, and then suddenly this information comes and it all flips on its head. You are going to be laid bare. Your reputation and your work and everything that you've done is going to be on public display. And it's a great feeling. It's a lovely feeling. I really enjoy that because the motivation to get a board looking really nice for the family is one thing. But when you know you're going to have lots of eyes coming for a certain date, that's the key. The family are there for me all the time. With Saul, it's on occasion. But you know they're going to be walking around, seeing the garden in its present state every day of the year. But when you know you've got a key date coming up, you want that garden to look the best it absolutely can. And you'll do anything. You'll shift hell and high water to get it looking like that because that's what a head gardener does. So two months prior to this date, my brain was like, right, come on, let's do this team. Let's put our resources where we need them to. Let's come up with a plan. I may have drawn up the odd list. Um, so I'm sure Saul has numerous spreadsheets he refers to for 
such activities. So I had to think of the logistics and ask lots of questions about the events and what was going to be happening. I had to think about my staff, who was coming in and when. I have a part-time team, so I need to remember when they're coming in, uh, liaise with them if they've got holidays, and they, some of them did, and make sure that they were able to commit to the hours that I needed them to. And then you have to think about the skill set of the staff and plan days accordingly. If you've got people coming in for a full eight-hour day, every hour of that eight-hour day counts. And you need to make sure you give them jobs that you think are appropriate for them, for their skill set, for their physique, their stamina, dexterity. These are all important things to consider. So my brain was thinking about that. The event itself, you're thinking, well, where's the footfall going to be highest? Where's it going to be lowest? What are the areas we need to concentrate on the most and the least? There was a marquee involved. Uh, with the service is coming to the marquee. Where are they going to run? Ours ran up to the brew house, so we had to think about electric cables. They are not friendly with mowers and edging shears, so that all had to be taken into account. Where were the toilets going to go? When were the caterers going to come in? The car parking. Where was that going to be? We had at least 100 cars to park. The fields need to be cut and prepped for that. The signage for the car parking, that all had to be organised as well. If you have elderly people coming into the garden, where the areas they're going to be likely to walk in, so you have some, some benches, some seating for them to take a rest should they need to. Is there audio? We had audio in the marquee. So again, you've got cables to think about. When are those people coming to install those cables? Are you going to be in their way? Are they going to be in your way? You know, you have to work around everybody and the, your employers will appreciate you doing that and taking time to make sure that you don't all want to be working on that one piece of gravel pathway all on the same day. If you've got flowers coming, where are they going to be stored or florists coming to do that? We had painters and decorators working on the front of the building in the area where the marquee was ultimately going to go. That area was out of bounds for us for quite a long time. So we had to ensure that the structural work, all the pruning and things was done way in advance. And then all the fine clearing of that was done literally very, very soon to the event itself. So as you can see, there's an awful lot to get your brain around. That was that. My brain was in gear. I had all this information and I was had a, have a really good relationship with the family, asking lots of questions. They understand why I'm asking. So you've got to keep that conversation free-flowing, making sure that you understand what's happening when and they understand why you're asking all these questions when they're actually really busy and they've got to choose an outfit and they've got to write all these letters and invites and they've got RSVPs to chase up and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, it is important to liaise with the, your employers, but at the same time, don't drive them mad. So in the previous month or so to the event, I was ensuring that all the main sort of structural pruning was done. So grapevines were cut back, shrubs were pruned, trees had their canopies lifted, things that could be done a month in advance and they weren't going to then be undone through the passing of time before the event itself. So that was the jobs we focused on with our gardening team then. Then going into the previous two to three weeks to the event, the areas which weren't going to have the high footfall for us were things such as the kitchen garden, the hot and cold borders, the wildflower meadow. So those areas actually we focused on tidying two to three weeks before the event because they would still look decent on the event itself, but they didn't need to look highly manicured. Going through deadheading, staking, pruning, training, cutting the grass, that was all done on the areas which were not going to be frequented too often, two to three weeks beforehand. Also, you have to think about practicalities. We spray at the hall for with weed killers because we have vast areas of gravel driveways, uh, main driveway around the house. We also have a lime avenue going up the main driveway. All the circles under the limes need to be sprayed off. And also this has been a very wet year. So you have to coordinate your spraying with what the weather's going to do, if it's going to rain, 
you can't be spraying but if you know you can't push it so close to the event that by the time you spray the weeds are still dying off often weed killers take two to three weeks to, to look like they're they're taking effect and the weeds have died off so that was something i really focused on between two to three weeks before the event itself we've got lots of containers and also roses at the hall i wanted to make sure they all were deadheaded so that actually come the event they were then having another flush of blooms so again this was all done two to three weeks prior to the event in the previous fortnight we had hedges that needed to be trimmed got a vast yew hedge running around the front of the house and the holly at the front we've got um bay and pyrocanthal columns running up the front of the house a big magnolia grandiflora tracular spermums on the terrace all these had to be pruned and I had to liaise again with the decorators to make sure we weren't going to be in their way. And then in the previous week, things are cranking up a little bit now, the pressure's slightly on, but because you've done all that groundwork, actually you feel okay. As a head gardener, you're like, do you know what? I'm on track. I've got my tying table, all the extremities are done. We now just need to make the areas around the house, around the hall look absolutely fantastic. And that's one, what we then did. So all the grass was trimmed, the edges were all cut and half moon. Now, goodness me, we have a lot of edges at the hall. That is a job in itself. I had one person on that job for the whole fortnight going up to the event, just to give you an idea of how many, how many edges we, we have at the hall. It's quite considerable. And then the day before, you're looking at the very fine jobs, such as blowing leaves, raking gravel, that final dead head just to make sure the blooms are perfect. If there's any grass that's suddenly got a bit shaggy, get the mower over it again. It's already had its major cut, so it's just tickle it over to get that looking really, really polished. And of course, there's always going to be tasks that nobody can foresee. Um, you know, if the, the, we had the toilets had to be repositioned and where they were, they were right by the blue cedar bed and there was a massive big forsythia right in the way. So I had to literally take that right down to the ground i know it will come back it's it's it was a drastic renovation but it needed to be done otherwise people couldn't access the toilets so that all needed to be sorted out the car park where that was leading through to the main house there was a big lime tree in the way and we have some tall people coming to these events so i had to ensure that the lime canopy was raised in a very kind of natural looking way to ensure that people coming through from the car park to the main area had to make sure that their heads weren't coming into contact with all the lime foliage. And then, of course, last minute flower arranging. There's foliage and flowers that need to be gathered in to supplement what they've ordered from the florist, for example. So there's a lot of last minute little tweaks that need to be completed. And you have to have a buffer. That's the only way you can deal with those sorts of things. Make sure you haven't pushed it right to the wire. And then you've got capacity to take on any last minute requests. So I hope that gives you some kind of insight into what is going on behind the scenes if you ever get invited to these wonderful events. It's great to have a target date to work to. It really unites everybody as a team and it focuses your thoughts and your passion and your desire to get the gardens looking really top-notch. And at the end of the day, that is the job of any head gardener. And that brings this week's episode to an end. We hope you enjoyed listening into our take on gardening in the 21st century. Please do let us know, either through a review with your podcast provider or direct to us on our Twitter feeds, at GardeningSaul and at HeadGardenerLC. And also follow Lucy's Instagram page, also at HeadGardenerLC. As summer days lengthen, it offers more opportunities than ever to enjoy your garden, whether you're digging, hoeing and raking or sipping on a summer drink with friends. 
Whatever the reason, enjoying your outdoor space and bringing a little bit of foliage and flower to your personal plot is one of life's real joys. As head gardeners, summer is one of those periods where the garden brings the greatest satisfaction as the planning and perspiration spent for most of the year manifests a cacophony of botanical eye candy. But there is still much work to do, so join us on a future episode to see exactly what Lucy and I are up to. Until the next episode of Talking Heads, goodbye! goodbye.